We're bringing you this podcast in partnership with our friends at Virgin Money, the home of brighter business banking. I've always just wanted to kind of flip this industry on its head. I think watches have always um, signified an item piece of wealth acquisition, how much wealth you can acquire for yourself. But for me, I wanted to, to disrupt that and make this watch a, a piece that really signifies wealth distribution and people wanting to buy a product because they want to actually output more to the world and, and make a positive difference. Welcome to The Jump, the Virgin Startup podcast bringing you the unheard stories of the founders behind some of our favourite startups. I'm Ben Keen, and today on the podcast, how young founder William Adoesi created Vitae London, a luxury watch brand changing the story on what watches represent, with its social mission to support vulnerable children in Africa through school. young age, William loved watches. Growing up in South London, he would collect them, buying watches to match his outfits, upgrading them as he developed his own personal style. But he never imagined he would eventually have his own line of them. I remember even like being 13, 14, having all these different um, G-Shocks and Casios. Every single watch had to match the outfit. So I had a purple one, a red one, a white one, just loads of different colours. Ever the founder-to-be, the young William dropped out of uni to start his first business at 21 supplying sports teachers to schools around London before becoming a recruitment consultant in the city. But although it paid well and he was good at it, he was left wanting. It didn't give him the purpose and meaning that he was looking for from work, something I'm sure a lot of us in this community have felt at certain points. So in 2015, he joined the Dots and launched Vitae London, a line of luxury watches with a difference. For every watch sold, they buy educational resources for orphaned and vulnerable children to support them through school. The ultimate trigger was actually from my wife. So she had visited a charity and she saw how just a little bit of money could make such a big impact. Um, a little bit of money could provide school uniform. And for so many of these children, school was free for them. It was right on their doorstep. But because of something as insignificant as school uniform, they were being hindered from going to school. So our whole mantra is to be the watch brand changing lives. So in essence, with each watch we sell, yeah, we're going to help support a child through education. To date, his watches have been sold in more than 30 countries and the company has provided over 5,000 educational resources for children. William took out a startup loan from Virgin Startup and ended up getting mentored by Richard Branson himself. He was selected as one of Forbes' leading black British business people to follow soon after. Impressive stuff, and as I found out when we met, he credits his drive to his upbringing. So um, I was born and raised in South London. I'm actually the firstborn of seven children, so yeah, from a from a super super large family, and yeah, I, I grew up in a council estate in South London. There was a point where all nine of us in the family were in this like two bedroom flat, um, and yeah, it was a bit of a struggle, a bit of a grind growing up. So I think the aspiration for more was always kind of embedded in me from then, but uh, a real eye opener happened for me at the age of eleven. Um, I actually went off to boarding school in the Midlands and I say it was an eye-opener because like I was exposed to a world I'd never seen. Um, I was one of only a few black people mm. in the whole school. 
where I was more used to being in an environment where yeah we were we were the majority I guess in in South London at the time so so yeah so being in that that different environment um I think I saw disparity for the first time I remember going to play a game of rugby against another school we unfortunately lost which was a rare occasion and a, f a fight broke out afterwards and someone from my team, my school, referred to the other team as council estate scum, not realising that I'd grown up in a council estate myself. Um, so, yeah, so I think from that age, I always had a little bit of a chip on my shoulder to kind of, I don't know, prove people wrong that despite my background or where I've come from, that that doesn't limit who I am as a person. So I think that's where it all really stems from. It's not surprising that that, that gave you not only a chip on your shoulder, but what's what's brilliant is that it led to something positive. Um, just dwelling on that for a moment, because flipping the contrast culturally, ethnically, um, and in many other ways, I can't imagine like going from the the lifestyle, you know, almost leading your your siblings the charge in South London to to being in amongst that very privileged and uh, like in some ways, you know, racist environment. Um, how did that how did you channel that or how did you start to channel that um mix of what must have been a lot of negative emotions into into not you know retreating into yourself or becoming angry and and therefore coming out the other side and and doing something really positive yeah i i don't know i've always had a had the kind of mindset and mantra that life was too short right mm. and no matter what i've gone through I, I kind of have been shaped into having the mindset that even the negativities can be can be used for good. Um, and yeah, like, I guess I kind of used the bad words that were said about people from my background or the stereotypes that were thrown at me as ammunition to drive forward to one level out the playing field and to um, change those narratives. Um, so for me, all the negativity just kind of fueled me to to just want to go that bit harder, to want to work that bit harder and, and kind of prove that, yeah, again, despite where I've come from, despite what the stereotypes would, would paint me to be, I can prove that that's, that's nonsense. And, and I think that's the best way to kind of counteract that negativity is with, is with positivity. Well, you've clearly used that, that early resilience and mindset around trying to do something positive, um, you turn it into action and and that this started soon after school right so tell us about your first business starlight sports academy how did what was the idea and what happened yeah so i went to university for a year and then um i i dropped out because i i had this this vision and idea i, I was building and it, it's a super simple idea it's just a load of people who i went to college with who i grew up with they had done different coaching qualifications um, so they were FA Level 1 qualified, FA Level 2 in, in various different sports. And and I just found that, yeah, with so many of them, they were sitting idly on a qualification, which meant they could train. Um, mm. So I just saw a gap within school. So uh, myself and, and a cousin of mine, we literally just started calling up all the local schools. I think an estate agency would allow you to put in a postcode and then show all the schools in the local area, obviously, if someone's looking for a house. So we would put in the postcode of the, the makeshift office we had and search all the local schools, 
try and book in meetings. And also at the time, the government was given funded to um, primary schools to kind of try and tackle obesity. So we were able to selling selling these people in our community to these schools. The schools were able to get the funding from the government. So it was just it was just a win win. It was such an easy pitch, to be honest. Um, so I ran that business for about three years, um, got it to six figures. Then the government pulled the funding and we'd probably overspent a bit in terms of we'd now been in a nicer office, which we really didn't need, etc. And it, yeah, it got to a point where it wasn't really feasible to keep the business running anymore. So, yeah, at the age of around 21, 22, after three years of doing that, I unfortunately had to stop that to, to go get a job in the city and complete my degree part time on the side because my parents are African and they wouldn't allow me not to finish my degree. There we go. It's Education, just... son, is the answer. <laughs> And, and um, literally, it's 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 interesting because again, you're flipping from you suddenly you're in that world of entrepreneurship at a young age. You learn all those lessons about cash flow and uh, finding funding sources and and creating value propositions and selling ideas like that. That you learn that super early, and then you're flipping again, right? You're flipping back into you're then in a corporate world of the city. Um, mm. How did you not lose your entrepreneurialism in that next phase? Funnily enough, I feel like I use the same skills and traits of entrepreneurship that I do now when I took on those jobs in the city. So I was an, an insurance broker and a recruitment consultant. And yeah, with both those roles, there is a, a level of autonomy where you can, in essence, build a business within the business. Um, yeah, within recruitment, you, you're looking for the, the product, which is in essence the people. And then you're looking for where to place them, which is the business development side of things. So I, I did get like a 360 kind of understanding and shape of, of business, even while working those jobs. And I feel like there's been so many transferable skills like meeting etiquette, like sales techniques that I learned while working in those jobs that have been super important in the, the building of the, the business I have today. Yeah, that's fascinating. Um and then the business we have today is Vitae London. So tell us about the genesis of it. And what was, I'm particularly interested in what were your driving motivations at that point when it started? What was the trigger for you to act? Yeah, I guess the, the ultimate trigger was actually for my wife. So she had visited a charity, the first charity we support, supported and still do to this day, House of Wells. Um, she had visited them a few years prior to Vitae London starting. And she saw how just a little bit of money could make such a big impact. Um, a little bit of money could provide school uniform. And for so many of these children, school was free for them. It was right on their doorstep. But because of something as insignificant as school uniform, they were being hindered from going to school. So my wife and I were sending money on a monthly basis to support support this charity. And it got to a point where I was just looking at ways to do this on a larger scale in a more sustainable way as well. Um, and yeah, the genesis of Vitae, I always say, is birthed out of frustration. Um, so two frustrations. Firstly, not being able to make the impact that we wanted to make at scale. Um, tied to that and, and coupled with that is the fact that my dad is the first in my family line to learn to read and write. Um, he grew up in, in a village in, in West Africa, in Ghana. And I always just think back about how 
him like begging family members and, and going to local people to get money to go to school, how he was able to break this cycle of poverty mm. and how, in essence, my wife and I, we were now doing this um, on a daily basis. So I wanted to see how we could do that bigger. And the, and the second frustration, to be honest, was working a job in the city I wasn't particularly passionate about. I knew I had to be doing something with a deeper purpose and I've always been creative. I've always been someone who's had an eye for design. I've always loved watches and, and collected watches. So I kind of merged those passions um, and, and those desires to, to, to then birth Vitae London. Um, so yeah, Vitae is Latin for life. So our whole mantra is to be the watch brand changing lives. So in essence, with each watch we sell, yeah, we're going to help support a child for education. I love it. And and it's um, it also feels like such a powerful metaphor, like the passage of time and talking about breaking cycles of poverty through resilience and like for, for your father and, and now you for others. And um, yeah, it's, it's, it's a beautiful story. Let's talk about the designer in you, uh, the, the product, the love of watches. Why? Why do you love watches? I don't I just had a fascination for them from a young age. Um, I remember even like being 13, 14, having all these different um, G-Shocks and Casios. And I got to a point where I was a, a bit of a nerd for, for G-Shock watches and every single watch had to match the outfit. So I had a purple one, a red one, a white one, just loads of different colors. I was just always super interested in watches. And then um, as time went on, I started collecting these watches called Aquamaster watches. And then your standard like Fossil and Michael Kors. And it was time to obviously step up to the to the big boy watches, so to speak. Um, and um, at that point was when I guess it dawned on me the idea of a Vitae because I felt there was a bit of a gap in the market. I felt like the gap between the, the lower end fashion watches and those higher end luxury watches, the chasm was too large. And I felt like I could design a product that could meet the needs of the luxury, the luxury consumer and um, would have amazing materials, but would still be at an affordable price point. Um, so that's why I, I really felt like I could, yeah, bring value to the, to the watch industry and, and bring some, some cool designs that would be, yeah, eye catching and look as luxury as possible, but still be affordable. Yeah. And, and also what I love about it, hearing you tell that story now, is it's also changing the narrative or disrupting the, the, the typical privileged story of, of selling watches of like old generations passing it on and, uh, you know, the, the bond type approach of like, you know, uh, good looking middle aged white man with a watch, you know, and, and so that's what's that's what's so compelling. And then there's this social mission as well. Um, how did you get how did you validate that assumption that there was a market in the middle there for you? And, and what did you do to get the business off the ground? How I validated it was, if I'm honest, simply by looking at the existing market, seeing the players in the market that had scaled in recent years. And I think in order to start a business, you're you're starting something that that doesn't exist. Right. You're you're doing something outside of the norm. And after looking at that market, I truly believed I could bring something new and fresh. I I was crazy enough to just believe that if these watch brands could be scaling at double digit percentiles year on year, like I just felt like I could design products that were more appealing than them at reasonable price points, but at, um, at the same time made a social impact. 
So for me, I just started to feel this optimism that like it, it has to work out. As long as I market this correctly, there's no reason why I can't compete against the players that are already out there. So yeah, that's that's kind of what, what birthed it. And for me, similar to what you just touched on, I've always just wanted to kind of flip to see on its head. I think watches have always um, signified an item piece of wealth acquisition, how much wealth you can acquire for yourself. But for me, I wanted to, to disrupt that and make this watch a, a piece that really signifies wealth distribution and people wanting to buy a product because they want to actually output more to the world and, and make a positive difference. So, yeah, and with time, we were able to, to validate that through the initial designs and collecting email addresses pre-launch. When we launched on the first day, we only sold about 13 watches, but I was over the moon because I was like, wow, that's 13, that's 13 human beings who have parted ways with their money to invest in what I've built. So if I could do it for 13 people, why can't I do that for, for 13,000 one day? Um, so yeah, that's, that's really what validated it. Um, some early signs of traction, some early sales, and we've just been trying to grow and scale ever since. So William, I'd love to hear a bit about the, the business model. So break down the pricing for us. Did you, did you figure out initially when you got, was selling those, you got those first 13 sales on day one, did you figure out pricing based on uh, market, based on how much you needed to make in terms of profit and uh, for your impact model to invest in these charities? Or was it really around the magic uh, sort of area of pricing where it's like what value, what perceived value is this to the to the customer? Because to me, that seems like a quite an interesting puzzle for this product. Yeah, I think for us, to be completely honest, I looked at the first two points you mentioned. I looked at the margin needed to make the impact. But then for me, to be frank, I just really wanted to see what the other players in the market were doing. The people who have who have kind of risen to the forefront in recent years specifically and what kind of price points they were selling at especially in the direct consumer space because those were the people i was going to have to be up against um, when we look at ads when we look at, at look at all aspects um so that was a, a major key in in my decision making is is looking at the competitors um looking at the price points i could obviously get the products in at and then the margin I needed to, to make the difference. Um, and once I was happy that there was still enough margin for us to scale the business while making that difference, then yeah, we kind of went live from there. All right, can we sell them? Yeah. And so what was the price point of the, the first Vitae watch and, and how much did that allow you to, um, to then invest or donate to the charities? Yeah, so our price points haven't really shifted um, drastically. Um, when we started, it was around one hundred and twenty nine pounds, um, and we've already we've always given around five to ten percent of 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 each sale towards the the causes that we we support. Our price points are a little different now, so they range between about one hundred and fifty to two hundred and fifty. Um, we're also releasing uh, some limited edition items um, next month, um, which will be ranging anywhere from about. Not, not drastically higher, but around 300 to, to 600 pounds. Um, and those watches will be cu coupled with an NFT as well. Um, and they will all be individually numbered. So, yeah, so those are our, like, uh, that's a new business model we're, we're pushing into with, with the brand. 
Um, but yeah, as it stands, I could say between 150 to, to 600. Yeah, and um, yeah, when you think about watches, it's, you're right, it's either below that or way above. So it's, it's an interesting mm. space. I, I love the way you frame this sort of shift in terms of telling the story of watches differently from sort of uh, the reputation of wealth or wealth acquisition to wealth distribution. How did you find the people, your customers, who were open to that and excited about becoming part of that story? Yeah, I, I think I think if you if you tell a story, if you share a narrative um, with a heart behind it, it's going to connect and resonate to the hearts of others. And I think that's that's kind of what has rung true for us. Um, yeah, from the beginning, us being strong in telling the story, in breaking down the narrative, not only of us as a business, but the children we support, has kind of organically drawn the right kind of personnel to us, um, both from a actually employment stand, standing in and the right team members to build the business, but also from the yeah the customer acquisition point, um, so yeah there is a beauty in us actually just telling our stories in in amazing and and descriptive ways in with great video campaigns as well, which have enabled us to have a really really great organic reach. Um, a lot of people then tend to share about our brand to other people, um, because it's something that resonates with 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 their hearts. So. Yeah, that's how we've been able to really build a community around this brand. That's brilliant. And and you're demonstrating that classic marketing technique of um, using a purple cow. I don't know if you've ever heard of it. You're doing it anyway, but it's the, uh, the Seth Godin uh, technique of like when, when you're on a train and the, you look out the window and see a purple cow, you talk about it, right? Because it's so unusual or it's remar yeah. It's literally worth remarking on. And, and and Vitae is the same thing. It's a purple cow in the watch space. It's like, oh, did you know, here's a watch that actually solves a problem in the world and is about wealth distribution. I'm curious then about, because your story is so strong around the social justice side of the pricing and, and the finances, um, what about the product itself? How, because I, I, I know nothing about watchmaking, um, but actually making the product itself, how have you made sure that you, your levels of, social justice and fairness in the supply chain of your product itself yeah so for me one thing that i was super nervous of even not just not just from a perspective of how the world would view it but purely even just for myself was i, I didn't want to be supporting all these children across sub-saharan africa but then having child laborers or or any kind of negative stain in the manufacturing process um, so for us, we went through a quite rigorous process of ensuring the factories that we worked with, and not only the ones we worked with directly, but indirectly in terms of where they got um, particular aspects of, say, packaging from, etc. We made sure they were all independently, externally audited. Um, so ensuring that they were audited meant we had peace of mind that, yeah, there, were, there weren't any negative working conditions for, for the workers. Um, so yeah, that, that's always been super important to us. Just having a, a business which holistically makes a, makes a good impact in the world because there's no point doing it in one half, but yeah, leaving it on the other. Absolutely. And I wonder if, and maybe this is something you're exploring already, whether the circle, the loop of Vitae will, will be, you know, 
perfectly complete one day when when the communities you're working with end up being part of the business itself is that something that's on the horizon or that's definitely the dream and aspiration um we already um hire three people out in Ghana so one of our dreams has always been to actually not only provide the education and educational resources which would obviously lead them into employment and into building businesses but where possible see how we can be a part of that and, and create jobs so yeah, I, I started a, a marketing training scheme out in Ghana and managed to bring on three people who have upskilled in, in various different areas of marketing. Um, so it's been amazing to provide those jobs. And I, I would love to get to a point where more of our manufacturing is done across sub-Saharan Africa as well. So we can create jobs in, in that aspect of of the whole um, the whole line of yeah our, our manufacturing and distribution. So... Yeah, those and are presumably and customers too, right? What is there a percentage of your customer base that's from those regions? Yeah, um, we often get orders from, especially Ghana, South Africa, Nigeria. We're going to, we're actually, we're holding a pop up across December and January. So yeah, December twenty one to January twenty two, um, in in Accra actually. So yeah, there is definitely a market for it within those regions. And even more powerfully, one of the reasons we decided to do the pop-up in Accra was the fact that um, over 150,000 visas have been issued for um, Accra in December. So this, Accra is really becoming like a hub for the, the diaspora to, to gather um, across December specifically and, and Christmas time. So, yeah, we're going to be yeah, really tapping into the community that are all flooding in who will often yeah, flood back to their respective homes um, across the West. Yeah. And one thing I know about the Ghanaian diaspora, they 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 love to move, obviously, but they also <laughs> love their identity in terms of fashion, right? And um, I For guess sure. it comes from the strong heritage of Kente and, and all of that. But it's uh, so I'm, I'm not surprised there's a market there for you. Um, so let's talk a little bit about your connection with Virgin. So the Virgin startup loan, uh, twenty thousand um, pounds. How did you? How was that? I mean, we're stepping back a bit, and then and then how did you end up getting Richard Branson to mentor you? I think I don't think he's done that with many. So what 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 was what happened there? Yeah. So yeah, in regards to the loan, it was it was actually super helpful to us. Um, at the time, I wasn't even aware of the different business finances I I could tap into. So yeah, after doing research, I, I found out about the Virgin Startup Loan and we were able to take out 20k at the time, which, yeah, I didn't know anywhere else I was able to even get that kind of money, even though it seemed small, it, it was a lot for us. And we were able to use that to, to purchase stock, which enabled us to scale at that time in a way that, yeah, we wouldn't have been able to without that. So yeah, it was super helpful in us being able to build the business. And in regards to yeah, meeting Richard Branson and getting some mentorship from him, um, out of the I think they mentioned to me at the time there were like over a thousand recipients of the loan. Out of the thousand plus people, um, they put a call to action out for people to submit videos and 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 express their interest in becoming Virgin Startup ambassadors and just encouraging more entrepreneurship across the UK. Um, so after that call to action, I submitted a video and I was chosen as one of 12 people to to um, actually get some mentorship from Richard Branson. All 12 of us went to his house in Oxford 
unfortunately I didn't get the Necker Island call but um, <laughs> Oxford w- would have had to do um, so yeah we, we all went to Oxford for breakfast with him which was amazing um, and he just shared some yeah some incredible insights and it was yeah it was it was it was brilliant to meet him then and then a year later they chose two people out of the 12 to have some smaller scale one-on-one mentoring with him and to interview him in front of a, a live audience and yeah, that's how the kind of connection with Richard Branson came about. Well, and also just just your brilliant storytelling and, and the and the product and business you're building, I'm sure is why I, I do you try, ended up I chatting with him. What <laughs> uh, and I know he bought a Vito watch and what 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 was yeah. the most useful part of that conversation for you? Did you have you taken anything and, and sort of put it into your business? It's not always what he says, but how he kind of conducts himself. Um so yeah, I was with him on this stage. I'm presenting to to him and then I knew that he couldn't back out of receiving the watch because it's in front of an audience. So I backed the watch out and I said, oh, I've got a gift for you. Um, I actually brought a watch for you today as a gift. Well, you're, that's very kind. Um, they, you should never, ever um, give away <laughs> gifts when, when you're building your business. And I know how much the watches cost, so I was well prepared. <laughs> Thank, you. <laughs> Thank you very much. Um, he in turn brought out a wad of cash, took off his watch and gifted me his watch and gave me a wad of cash um, and was like, you should never give away your best products for free. Now, the next day, a picture of him and I he, um, were on the front page of the Virgin uh, website and he released a whole article about why you shouldn't give away your, your best products for free, etc., etc. And he was talking about all about the interaction we had. And I think just... The way he conducted himself in that, in finding a PR opportunity in the midst of this this discussion we were having, just really opened my eyes to his brilliance, um, to his brilliance in knowing how to, to find opportunities, in knowing how to effectively sell stories and tell effective narratives. Um, so yeah, for me, that's been some of the biggest lessons, just being in his presence, seeing how he conducts himself, seeing how we can spot and find opportunities so that I can then, yeah, translate and use the same skills for myself. Yeah, seizing the moment, um, which you've done so much of as well. Uh, what, what, by the way, what did you do with uh, his watch? Did you, did you eBay it or did you? I'm, I'm, I'm still holding on to it. I'm still holding. I, I haven't decided entirely what to do yet. So time will tell, time will tell. You were like, I can't believe he wore, he wore this junk. <laughs> Anyway, he's not got he's got his upgrade now, hasn't he? So he's um, upgraded. So let's talk about where business is today, and then where it's going, and where people can get involved. And um, what's what's your biggest challenge right now, William? What, what's what's coming up that you're trying to figure out? I think our biggest challenge has kind of been scaling a bit. So we we've done over half a million revenue in the past year. So it, we we've been growing year on year. It's, it's been strong. We've been taken up by the two largest retailers in the States for fashion, so Nordstrom and Macy's. And I think that has been a beautiful struggle um, because for these large orders, obviously they want the stock up front um, and then a month or two later, they then pay us out. So in scaling and trying to fulfill these orders, that's actually been a stress of ours, um, ensuring we have the capital to be able to fulfill and and still have enough money to to grow and scale our online business in the correct trajectory. So I'm sure it's going to work. Um, Looking ahead, what are you most excited about? 
Um, whenever I'm asked what we're going to do next or what I'm excited about, I think for me, as, as basic as this answer may sound, I'm just excited at doing what we've been doing, but at a larger scale. I'm excited about impacting more lives. I'm excited about, yeah, making more of a difference. And to be honest, I'm excited about being more of a household name, being a, <laughs> a brand that a lot more people know about just within the culture generally. Um, I look forward to a day where we're in a lot more risk. Um, we're changing tact and approach a bit as well. So um, we're going to a, a phase where all our standard products will only be sold via our retail partners. And then on our website, we're going to be doing full collections a year, which are exclusive limited edition collections um, that are tied up to an NFT. So every single watch will be um, attributed in an NFT. So in the years to come, you would always be able to digitally prove ownership. Um, and and yeah, so that that's where we're going in terms of our online business and how we're dividing that up with our retail business. So yeah, just super excited to scale these concepts and and see where we can take things. Yeah, it's I can I can see so many possibilities, and I'm just listening in from the outside. So what what a time to be building this business. Um, and in terms of the impact you know, the original reason for starting the brand and the business. Um, fantastic to see that scaling up. How do you deal with the overwhelm of the number of children to support in the world? Not that that's your mission to support them all. And, mm. But like, you know, when you're looking at the big numbers, when you're seeing the headlines, you're seeing inequality growing in so many parts of the world, you're seeing the climate crisis exacerbating it and other factors, um, which isn't their fault. And like, how do you manage that sort of mentally and curious about because a lot of purpose-driven founders which by the way is the future of all business you're just ahead of the curve slightly uh, which is great um are often so so focused on like what part can i play as well as building their business as well as being great marketeers product makers etc so how do you how do you deal with that mentally that or are you just sort of super focused on like the three or four organizations or just great at partnerships um i'm just curious about what goes on in your head around the impact side of of what you do yeah i guess for me I, i've always been of the notion that i can't change i can't necessarily change the world but i can change someone's world and i think about the fact that someone stepped in the gap and pretty much changed my my dad's life which I'm a fruit of which now over 5,000 children have been supported through so it, it's that kind of ripple effect so I, I would love to be in a position where I could support everyone but I just want to do my best to to make the difference I can do and with time just scale that up as, as much as possible um so yeah it can feel overwhelming at times it can feel like it can feel like I'm just a drop in the ocean, but if if we all just contributed a drop, then before you know it, the the whole ocean would be filled. So, um, yeah, I'm just doing my bit to just contribute as many drops as as humanly possible. Ah, uh, yeah, the bathtub is overflowing from your contributions already, William. Um, <laughs> last question from from us today. Um, there'll be a lot of a lot of people listening who are, uh, and we get in Virgin Startup a huge amount of entrepreneurs in the kind of retail and fashion and, and like identity building space in all its ways with all its new business models from NFTs to D2C and everything else that you're, you're in the game with. 
what's your give us a you know one piece of advice there's so much and we've heard a lot already on this call but one piece of advice to someone who's maybe at that point where like I've got a you know an inkling of an idea um but I haven't got the confidence so I'm not sure how to start what what do you say to them yeah one thing I think I say this in pretty much every interview I I do is is that is the importance of starting small um I've just always been of the mindset and of the mentality really that when you think about it every single organization you see today was started by a human being it's it's as simple as that was started by an individual a person who had a dream who had a vi- um a vision and and saw it come to life and i think a lot of people are so intimidated by the scale of their vision that they end up sitting on their hands and doing nothing mm. whereas if you can do one thing today then another thing tomorrow and 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 drop those seeds every single day before you know it you you'll be able to bear fruit and you'll be able to see that vision you were intimidated by come to life um and another thing i would say in a more practical sense is be as data driven as possible mm. um if you're in that direct to consumer space if you're in that um, retail space any any space really in in the early days you you're still trying to figure things out even with a concept you can garnish data even with an idea you can gather data you can put surveys out for where people can give feedback on some of your ideas um in exchange for them giving the feedback you can incentivize them for potentially a discount in the future etc and with all these methods you're you're building a case study that your business is viable you're you're gathering data so that when you do launch your your more certain things are going to go in the way you wanted it to go so I, i would just encourage people to do as i said start small and do all you can day to day to gather as much data as humanly possible to build a case for that business that and that vision that you have yeah you're such a great example of the mix that we need in business and life of like head and heart and uh, or in this as we're talking about today you know data and story or commercial and mission and uh, with all the solutions that we're trying to tackle whether it's inequality in education or or trying to open a new part of the market you need both of these traits you need both sides of us of of humans right um so so thank you for sharing all of this and i guess the, the final thing just to just to ask is you know richard branson wears a vitae watch the ghanaian president i believe wears a vitae watch That's whose right. wrist do you want to see a vitae watch on that you haven't got it onto yet <laughs> Oh that's a big question. Who I I think I, I want to come for everybody's wrist. Um I want to see it on the Beyoncé's, the Jay-Z's. I want I want to get to a point where yeah, it's a brand that really really does infiltrate the culture in as many ways as humanly possible. So yeah, my aspirations are always are always massive. Um it's beautiful to have it on on a president, it's beautiful to have it on on a billionaire, which is awesome. but there's yeah there's there's thousands thousands if not millions more of incredible people that I would love to see our watches on so yeah it's it's non-stop for us um anyone who's anyone who's passionate about seeing a change in the world anyone who who loves design um that's who we want to see our watches on Beyonce and Jay-Z I know you're listening vitalondon.com <laughs> sort each other's christmas presents out. out now. William, thanks so much for joining us today. We love your story, your mission and we love your watches. 
Thank you. Thanks so much for having me. Cheers. This podcast was produced by Goldfish Studios for Virgin Startup. Visit virginstartup.org for more. I've been Ben Keen. Thanks for listening.